Hello and welcome to this BJSM podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Patterson, a physiotherapist and researcher from La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Now, it's starting to get pretty cold here, but I'm happy because it is Concussion in Sport Month for BJSM and we are releasing a series of podcasts, video abstracts, infographics over the next few weeks. And this is all on the back of the sixth international consensus on concussion in sport that was published in the BJSM recently. So every four years, researchers, clinicians and stakeholders with expertise in sports-related concussion are brought together to summarise the published literature and provide updated, evidence-informed recommendations. Today, we are lucky to be joined by concussion research royalty, Catherine Schneider and John Patricios. Uh, They are co-chairs of the Concussion in Sport International Consensus Committee. Catherine is a physiotherapist and associate professor at the University of Calgary Sport Injury Prevention Research Centre in Canada. Catherine is an expert in prevention, detection and rehabilitation of concussion with a special interest in the role of the cervical spine and balance systems. John is a sports physician and a professor of sport and exercise medicine at the WITS Faculty of Health Sciences in South Africa. John has worked in various sports over 30 years at all levels. He is the founder and director of Concussion uh, South Africa, a consultant to World Rugby, and he is an independent concussion advisory panel for the FIFA 2022 World Cup and in 2023 joined UEFA's head injury advisory committee. So Catherine and John have got a big task today. They're going to provide you an overview um, of the consensus and all the different topic areas. So there's a bit of a taster and a teaser. Um, strap yourself in. It's a big one, but it was all too good not to share with you and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine and John. Thanks so much, Brooke. All right. So let's get straight into it. Can you talk us through some of the key outputs of the consensus? And anything you think is important for the methodology for clinicians to know about the journey to get to this point? So this process has taken us um, over five years, actually, and we've had the pleasure of working with a wonderful team of collaborators of over 100 researchers and clinicians internationally that have expertise in the area of sport-related concussion. We have developed... 10 systematic reviews. Each of these 10 systematic reviews uh, identifies and evaluates a different research question related to sport-related concussion. We've strived to have a a diverse representation of clinical research and geographic representation across the different reviews. Um, But this is an area for future that we feel that we could improve on even further. Um, from an equity, diversity, and inclusion standpoint. We also uh, created an a priori consensus process that we had externally reviewed um, to ensure that we followed a process with the consensus that was very transparent um, and allowed the capturing of any types of alternate viewpoints. We included some anonymous voting Um, We summarized the alternate viewpoints, and we also asked all of those that were involved to disclose any potential conflicts of interest. So we 
wrote these systematic reviews to inform the Amsterdam consensus meeting, which was in October of 2022. And we had a two-day open meeting followed by a closed expert panel meeting the following day. And then we had a fourth day of meetings where we developed the tools. So it's really been a collaborative process and we've tried our best to be as methodologically rigorous as possible and to build on previous work. And we are really thankful for the support um, of the organizing committee, which includes um, international sport organizations, uh, the International Olympic Committee, International Ice Hockey Federation, Federation Internationale de l'Automobile, Federation Equest Internationale, Federation Internationale de Football Association, FIFA, and World Rugby. Um, and we're very thankful for their support and their endorsement throughout the process. The consensus statement is really meant as a summary of the evidence for clinicians to then take and adapt to their own contexts and environments. That's a huge amount of work um, to summarize in two or three minutes. I'm sure that's very humbling to, to do that, but congratulations to you both and the broader team. John, was there anything that you wanted to add in terms of the whole process? And I think we we're going to touch on some definitions before diving into the topic areas. Yeah, just to, again, emphasize the teamwork and collaboration of our colleagues, over a 100 of them, uh, the input of the sponsoring organizations, but also in terms of knowledge translation to acknowledge the role of BJSM. I think in terms of the support we've had from the editorial team and the reviewers, it's been really extensively reviewed, the consensus and the systematic reviews, but also in terms of knowledge translation, uh, making the papers freely accessible and the media that's going to be around uh, the, the outputs, we are very excited about it. We think the level of support is something that we haven't seen in previous uh, international concussion conferences, and we're grateful for that. And John, I think you were going to go through some definitions. There wasn't a systematic review de uh, dedicated to definitions this time round. But we certainly uh, acknowledge the importance of framing the concept of sport-related concussion. So there's an editorial which talks to definitions and really goes back to build on the original conceptual definition from 2001 from the Concussion in Sports Group. And we still define sport-related concussion as a traumatic brain injury that's caused by a direct blow to the head, neck or body that results in impulsive force to the brain. The definition acknowledges the complexity physiologically of the neurotransmitter and metabolic cascade and the possibility of external injury, blood flow changes and inflammation. It also highlights the importance of no, no changes being seen on standard structural neuroimaging and the association of a whole range of clinical signs and symptoms. So that conceptual definition has been tweaked, but, but really remains intact as it has over the last two decades. The interesting aspect of the build-up to this conference was some collaborative work with the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, particularly their Brain Injury Special Interest Group, who have developed their own specific diagnostic criteria 
And there was a need identified to try and unify our criteria universally. And, and the discussions that took place in the months before Amsterdam really went a long way to doing that. We didn't quite get it over the line, but certainly there's now a desire from both CISG and ACRM to come up with a unitary conceptual and operational definition. So what we're going to do now is go through each of those 10 topic areas where there's been a systematic review for, for each of these and there will be associated podcasts and different um, video abstracts and things that um, get put out on these. But Catherine and John are going to give you a, a, the highlights reel. Um, this is going to be a one-stop shop to get a little, little teaser of everything. What better way to start, Catherine, than prevention? Obviously, if we can prevent the first injury, that's that's ideal. Thanks, Brooke. I totally agree. If we can prevent concussions, then we can minimize the public health impact that they have and the impact that they have on athletes playing every sport. Um, and uh, this is a systematic review um, that was led by um, Paul Eliason and my colleague Carolyn Emery. And um, really identifying and and identifying further literature that supports some of the recommendations that came out of the Berlin consensus statement. Um, so there was uh, further evidence to support um, disallowing body checking in youth ice hockey as a prevention mechanism. In Berlin, there was some preliminary evidence that suggested that mouth guards may be protective of concussion in um, ice hockey and the output this time was that uh, mouth guard uh, wearing should be recommended um, in ice hockey um, given the uh, protective effect against concussion um, in individuals that are wearing mouth guards. Other areas of prevention strategies such as training strategies um, there is evidence also that neuromuscular training warm-ups in rugby um, can be protective um, of concussion. And so neuromuscular training warm-ups are recommended, but we do need more research in female athletes as well as across other sports. And there's also evidence to show that an optimal concussion management strategy to improve education and detection of concussion, as well as access to early healthcare, um, can prevent recurrent concussion and persistent symptoms. Okay, so we obviously can't prevent all injuries. Um, how do we go about assessing concussion? What are the latest recommendations, John? I think this was a very exciting part of the process, and we've really tried to emphasize that in different communities, many different healthcare professionals may play a role. And in fact, even a step before that, non-healthcare professionals might be needed to recognize and remove a player who was suspected concussion. So the systematic review number two and three uh, really looked at the development of tools or the advancement of tools that can aid this process. And this resulted in a group of five tools, which we are very excited about because of the content, but also because of the new look 
there's a brand new look to the tools and we think that's going to be very exciting for clinicians. And as always, these tools will be freely accessible. So the tools I'm referring to are the concussion recognition tool, CRT6, to align with the Sixth International Conference. And that is a tool for non-health care professionals to use. So the lay person who's on the side of the soccer field or hockey field and perhaps needs to play a role in recognizing a player with potential concussion, removing them, looking for red flags. All those are on a very neatly laid out format for the layperson to use. And so we're very excited about the CRT6. Then Ruben Ekemendia led the systematic review that looked at developing the sports concussion assessment tool, number six, and that works or uh, adds on to a lot of the work done previously and probably the most researched aspect of previous concussion consensus outputs, the SCAT-5. So the SCAT-6 really advances the identification, recognition and removal of a player with concussion and builds on uh, really an established format on the, the SCAT-5. The SCAT-6 has looked at some advancements, including removing the five-word list because of its ceiling effect and including a 10-word list uh, as compulsory. There's been some digits added to the digit span backwards to make it more robust as a test. There have been some timed aspects which are included, including the some of the verbal recall tasks. There's been a dual gate task that's been added. Um, and then an emphasis on some of the robust sets of physical signs. Well, I think people are going to be quite excited about the new look of the SCAT-6, but at the same time, it'll have a familiarity about it that people that have used the SCAT-5 will feel very comfortable in using it. And we're hoping to advance this to an electronic or app form uh, in the months to come as well. What we have emphasized is that this process of initial evaluation should be given the context and time it deserves, about 10 to 15 minutes in a, a, a space that's off-field, preferably in a quiet area away from the scrutinies of match day uh, activity. So that's an important context for it as well. Uh, and then just important to mention that there is a child version of the SCAT as well, the SCAT 6, and Gavin Davis has led that process with a plum, and the SCAT 6 child version will also have a slightly new look to it, but will be quite familiar to people who are used to the fifth version. A very nice and exciting addition to the Amsterdam process has been the office assessment tool, the Sports Concussion Office Assessment Tool 6, or SCOTE 6 and Child SCOTE 6. And this really came about from research over the last five or six years, which showed that the SCAT has maximum utility uh, in the first three days, 72 hours, and perhaps up to a week. And so we felt the need to help develop a tool which would guide, guide clinicians to utilize a multimodal assessment of a potentially concussed athlete and guide them through that process and hopefully help them in terms of uh, working towards appropriate management. So the office assessment tool or SCOTE 6 and child SCOTE 6 
introduce a number of uh, additional levels of evaluation, including a more comprehensive history of the concussion and potential modifying factors. The SCOTE 6 uh, includes the word recall and digit backwards tests from the uh, from the SCAT 6, but also adds to the evaluation of uh, the clinical assessment in terms of an orthostatic evaluation of blood pressure and heart rate, uh, a cervical spine assessment, neurological examination, timed tandem, single task and complex dual tasks, the addition of the modified vestibular ocular motor screen or VOMS, and then obviously the delayed word recall uh, after five minutes. And then has some useful guidelines in terms of return to learning, return to sport, which we'll talk a little bit about later. And then the child version of the SCOTE 6 has some variations which introduce parent input as well, more child-appropriate measures of cognitive reaction time, uh, and some uh, pediatric-specific clinical evaluations. And the child SCAT 6 and SCOTE 6 are appropriate for ages 8 to 12, and then the actual SCAT 6 and SCOTE 6 from 13 and upwards. So we're very excited about the new tools, both the content and the look, and we think they're going to be really very, very useful for clinicians. Great resources for clinicians there to help guide them guide them through the assessment. And I think the key points I kind of took out there for, for clinicians were it's a really easy win to be able to share these resources with the, the athletes and coaches and clubs and organisations that you're working with so they're aware of them. Um, but also some more detailed stuff for them to go in for their own assessment as a clinician and just that recommendation for that time to recognise. Thanks, John. And yes, we will be doing an extra podcast with Ruben Ekamendia on the assessment tools. Once we've assessed it, though, how do we go about managing it? And there were many systematic reviews on these topics. So systematic review four, five, six, seven, and 8. Uh, go through the different phases of management. So initially rest and exercise through to interventions um, and the whole recovery and return to learn and return to sport, which we're going to do a podcast on on some of these topics as well. But Catherine, did you want to give us a bit of a highlights reel of, of management of concussion? I think um, this is an area where there has been some evolution of the literature and as part of the Amsterdam consensus, we um, wrote a series of systematic reviews, including a review that was dedicated to the effects of rest and exercise that was led by John Letty. Um, we had a systematic review on rehabilitation, um, assessment of persistent symptom, persisting symptoms, returning to sport and learning and recovery and the overall management actually incorporates a lot of similar principles from each of these systematic reviews to inform recommendations for management. So the outputs of these systematic reviews, um, we report specific to each of the reviews, but then together provide recommendations um, for management. So in terms of resting, um, the evidence is quite similar to what we had recommended for Berlin in that just a brief period of 24 to 48 hours of relative rest, both cognitively and physically, is recommended. Um, and again, that really stressing that importance of 
being relative rest, not um, strict rest. Um, so reducing screen time and activities of daily living um, initially and up to the first two days. Um, and following that time, return to um, activities of daily living and physical activity is recommended. And in this case, we're recommending a gradual increase in intensity based on symptom exacerbation. Um, and the term um, sub-symptom threshold aerobic exercise um, and working within that symptom threshold, you'll hear more about in a podcast um, coming up with John Letty talking about rest and exercise. He'll share more details on it and the principles related to management. Uh, we recommend no more than mild symptoms um, that um, don't increase more than two points on a 10-point scale, and they resolve within um, one hour. So our mild and brief exacerbation of symptoms as an individual um, progresses through those initial stages. Um, in terms of the effects of exercise, there's actually quite a bit of literature now that supports the use of aerobic exercise, sub-symptom threshold aerobic exercise, starting as early as two days following concussion and has been shown to be safe and effective um, in facilitating recovery early on in the prevention of persisting symptoms and also in the treatment of persisting symptoms, so in individuals that have symptoms for greater than four weeks. In terms of cognitive load, there is evidence that supports reduced screen time in the first 48 hours, but following that point, reductions in screen time um, don't appear to be effective. And um, for individuals that have ongoing symptoms, um, we, uh, a systematic review led by Keith Yates looked at assessment of persisting symptoms and our Amsterdam expert panel adopted the term persisting instead of persistent symptoms um, and defined this as persisting symptoms being symptoms that remain for greater than four weeks across all ages, whereas previously um, the term persistent symptoms was used at 10 to 14 days um, for adults. Um, but now across all ages, we recommend using the term persisting symptoms for those that stick around for greater than four weeks. Um, in terms of assessment of persisting symptoms, there are um, the use of symptom scales that are standardized and validated is appropriate, but the literature is very limited in terms of any recommendations that can be made in terms of specific outcome measures for the clinical diagnosis of persisting symptoms. A clinical multimodal assessment, often engaging multidisciplinary groups of healthcare professionals um, is recommended. And it's also important to recognize that there can be co-occurring uh, health conditions um, that may be associated with these persisting symptoms. So considering mental health, learning or attention difficulties, uh, visual, oculomotor, cervical, vestibular, headache, migraine, sleep, etc., is very important in terms of co-occurring systems that could be affected. And then when we look at rehabilitation, um, 
from a rehabilitation standpoint in Berlin, we recommended individualized interventions, including cervical and vestibular therapy um, and rehabilitation, potentially including sub-symptom threshold exercise. And at that time, there was some uh, mix in the literature in terms of the benefit of uh, exercise. And as uh, we've already mentioned, there's strong, consistent evidence that sub-symptom threshold exercise can be a benefit. Um, we do have evidence to support and more evidence to support the use of cervicovestibular rehabilitation um, starting uh, 10 days following concussion in individuals that have persisting dizziness, neck pain, and headaches. So this type of rehabilitation is recommended. And for adolescents with persisting symptoms for longer than four weeks, um, active rehabilitation and collaborative care may be of benefit. And we recommend that this is done in combination with aerobic exercise. So once an individual has recovered, a challenge that we encountered actually across the different topic areas was how diffuse the literature is. There are so many different outcomes that are used to assess recovery. In some cases, it's symptoms. In some cases, it's clinical tests. In some cases, it's return to functional activities. And in some cases, they're very poorly defined. So this was a big challenge that we faced in multiple systematic reviews. So within the consensus statement, we actually highlight the need for defining clinical recovery and the time point at which clinical recovery is assessed. So we recommend the use of a validated symptom scale um, to assess symptom reports, um, both at rest and with physical exertion. Use an assessment that is related to the outcome of interest if it's a research um, question or related to the specific area that the athlete's having difficulty in, as well as a measure of return to activity, such as return to learn or return to sport. When we look at return to learn or return to sport, um, Margot Patukian and Steve Broglio led our systematic review on returning to learn and returning to sport. And you can hear more from Margot Patukian um, as part of the podcast on return to learn and sport. Thank you. That was fantastic, Catherine, and such a huge area to cover by the sounds of it. Um, and yeah, it sounds like it's exciting that there's some consistent messaging coming through, but also just some more research to support those things. And probably the biggest thing that stands out to me for clinicians is that that role that they have to play in that early active recovery. And, and it's probably somewhat surprising to some, some people and especially athletes and parents that may get told that, you know, just rest, don't do anything. So I think those points around the mild symptoms um, and it's okay to have those as long as they, they recover and they're not more than that two points. Um, and also, the even though the patient-reported outcomes might be more relevant for research, they're obviously still really useful for clinicians as well if they are treating these athletes to kind of monitor uh, their recovery. So encourage encourage clinicians to check those out as well. Um, we're going to move on now to a couple of the other topics. And so, John you're going to talk about some of the long-term effects and also the decision to retire. So somewhat, you know, um, controversial, sensitive 
Um, I'm sure this is also a, a challenging and big area to, to tackle. So looking forward to hearing your summary. Yeah, I think there's no question that the highest profile topic around sport-related concussion has been the potential long-term effects, uh, especially when uh, words like dementia are brought into the discussion in terms of both publications and media and social media. This has been a topic which has really received a lot of prominence over the last five years, certainly. So this was a very important systematic review for the group to undertake, and it was really superbly led by Grant Iverson, uh, well supported by Bob Cantu and a very able multidisciplinary team. And it was really spurred on by the findings and acknowledgement in the systematic review and in the consensus statement that there are studies of former professional athletes that uh, examined the association between contact and collision sport uh, and things such as dementia and neurodegenerative disease. And there seems to be some support of an association between uh, contact and collision sport, particularly American football players and professional soccer players, which shows increased rates of neurological disease and dementia in these groups, and also um, higher mortality rates from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS. And that certainly acknowledged, was also acknowledged, is the complexity of this research and the very um, the great difficulty in terms of trying to weed out uh, the issue of causality, uh, you know, in these issues, particularly when it comes to controlling for factors that are known to be important for brain health in the general population. And these are as diverse as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, and then also includes things such as educational level, socioeconomic status, smoking, hypertension, etc. So both social contextual factors and physiological uh, and disease factors. So a very complex area, which is, I think, well summarized in the consensus statement and tackled in depth in the systematic review on potential long-term effects. What is an interesting finding from this review is that uh, amateur athletes don't seem to have the same association with these neurodegenerative diseases. And then also that when it comes to mental health problems, things like uh, depression, anxiety, and also uh, some cognitive impairments, that both amateur and professional athletes don't seem to have an increased risk for death from psychiatric disorders or suicide. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not at risk of mental health issues, but it doesn't seem that they're at greater risk than the general population. So that was, that was, I think, an important outcome. When it came to the inclusion criteria for the papers in the long-term effects systematic review, there weren't case series included uh, on CTE, which is probably the area of highest focus in terms of the discussions on this topic. But in recognition of the importance of this topic, this was included in both that in-depth paper and in the uh, consensus statement. And so there's been some very, very good discussion 
about CTE, the neuropathological entity, in the consensus statement, and then also looking at the concept of traumatic encephalopathy syndrome, or TES, as a new clinical diagnosis first uh, published in 2021. So a very recent concept. So this will be very interesting to people who want to contextualize CTE and see where it is in the discussion of potential long-term effects. It receives considerable attention in the systematic review and then even more in-depth uh, exploration in the supplement associated with that review. So the work that went into this from the author group is really, uh, I think, excellent. And I think it will create several topics for further discussion. And then very importantly, as a scientific committee, we recognize the need to carry this work forward. And to, by the time we come to the next consensus meeting, to try and answer more of the questions. And in particular, put together research frameworks which are a little more robust and have input from a broader group. And so we really committed to putting a working group together to try and explore these issues in more depth over the next four to five years, which I think is going to be an important outcome from Amsterdam. So I think a lot of discussion is going to come out of this and you know, associated with that, the BJSM podcast, which will include Grant Iverson and Bob Pantu, I think will be of great interest to clinicians and the, the public alike. And then associated with the long-term effects issue is the decision to retire. And this is a new topic that's been tackled by the scientific committee and the paper led by Michael McDesey looked at the decision-making process that one undergoes as a clinician, as an athlete, as a support group for that athlete, and what it takes to make that decision. And again, it was a very comprehensive review, which also highlighted some of the holes in the research which needed to be filled, but ultimately concluded that this decision-making process needs to be a comprehensive clinical evaluation that considers patient injury, sport-specific, and a host of other factors which need to be taken into account. It's not only a multimodal and multidisciplinary evaluation, but often a multi-time point evaluation. And it needs a lot of honesty that addresses the scientific facts, some of the uncertainties around sport-related concussion, and also highlights the benefits of ongoing sport participation, even if it's not contact and collision sport. So I think this will be a paper of great interest as well. And I, I really give credit to Michael McDesey for putting this on the table and leading the process, because I think it's going to be very useful to clinicians who are looking for a framework in making these very difficult decisions with athletes, their parents, uh, their coaches and their support teams. I really like that, um, the honesty and uncertainty, uh, two words to kind of for people to keep in the back of their, their mind when having those discussions with athletes. So um, the last two topics, we've got some special populations within the context of sports-related concussions. So Catherine, you're going to tell us um, about the considerations for paediatric population and then John, you're going to um, chat to us about the parasport. 
Great. Thanks, Brooke. Um, yeah. So one thing that we uh, had done in the past was we wrote a systematic review um, on the management of pediatric concussion. Um, however, it was felt this time that actually the topic areas are the same. Um, and really important is to consider how we can optimize um, processes across concussion care um, for the child and adolescent athlete. And this is an area that Gavin Davis led, and we had identified pediatric authors on each of the systematic reviews. So they're um, individuals that have expertise specific to children and adolescents um, and the topic area of the review. And for uh, this process, we defined child as 5 to 12 years old and adolescents as 13 to 18 year olds and specifically extracted data relevant to these age groups wherever we possibly could um, to help us make recommendations related to pediatrics. Um, and we also recognize that um, children and adolescents would be less likely to have trained medical personnel um, on the sidelines of sporting events. So um, it's highlighted that the concussion recognition tool six or the CRT six really um, is a tool that could be promoted and used, especially in pediatric sport and used by adolescents and adults on the sidelines with coaches, anyone involved in sport to help recognize when a concussion may have occurred. Um, as John mentioned earlier, um, the child SCAT-6 and the child SCOAT-6 um, have been developed. And one Thing that's really important to remember is that uh, children and adolescents are continuing to grow and develop so that the use of baseline testing is a very limited value in these age groups due to ongoing development. And from a management standpoint, really highlighting that returning to learn is a priority for children and individualized assessment um, is really important across all ages, but especially for children and adolescents. And in the event that um, a pediatric athlete has sustained repeated concussions and there are discussions around retirement um, or cessation of uh, contact or collision sport, um, the importance and the benefits of physical activity and physically active lifestyles are really important and uh, suggesting uh, other forms of physical activity and participation um, in non-contact sport um, would be very important to optimize health. One of the developments since the Berlin meeting has been the formation of the Concussion in Parasport Group, uh, or SIPS. And we included two of the leaders of Concussion in Parasport namely uh, Sherry Browett and Osman Ahmed, who contributed significantly to our scientific committee during the Amsterdam process. And part of that was to highlight the critical area of the para-athlete and how difficult it is to evaluate the athlete uh, who's involved in para-sport due to the range of impairments that are required to be evaluated in the context of sport-related concussion. On top of that, we also know from the research done by this group that elite Paralympic athletes 
are actually at higher risk of concussion injury when compared to athletes with no disability. And if one takes specific groups such as those athletes with visual impairments, one can imagine the high risk of, of these athletes. So it was very important, if not to solve these issues because they're so complex, that at least we highlighted them, uh, not only as part of the consensus statement, but also in the session we had during the conference on the para-athlete, which I think was probably one of the most eye-opening sessions of the, the two days that we had in open session in Amsterdam. So I think this little piece in the consensus statement adds great value and it cements a collaborative relationship with Concussion in Sports Group and the Concussion in Parasport Group that will hope, hopefully lead to resolving a lot of these issues and some very pragmatic solutions for the para-athlete before we get to the next consensus meeting. Thanks, John. And that actually wraps up all the topic areas we wanted to cover of all the, the reviews. Uh, we've covered a lot and we'll definitely link the listeners in with the links that they can go and read more on each of those topic areas. Was there any ethical considerations with the, the whole process? Apart from the high profile of sport-related concussion, there have been some really quite controversial discussions that have taken place around various topics uh, related to both sport-related concussion and the concussion in sports group. And as a scientific committee, I think we really recognise the need to tackle these head-on. A great addition to our committee was that of Mike McNamee, who's a medical ethicist, and he helped really guide us in terms of an objective perspective as to how we should embrace the robust methodology with which Catherine spoke to. Uh, we, we try to embrace a greater range of voices, including athletes uh, and stakeholders that are really part of the process that haven't been before. We highlighted the importance of having independent observers at the expert panel session. And we also really recognized and tried to question ourselves in terms of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and how we can do better uh, during both the Amsterdam process and moving forward. So we, we think we're, as a group, we're quite serious about these issues. And it's not just about the science, it's about the context and the ethics of the process as well. And we hopefully embrace this more than any other process has before, but also recognised that we can do better moving forward. Thanks, Catherine and John. To wrap up, I want to just leave the clinicians with some takeaways. Like probably there's lots of recommendations and good information out there, but how do healthcare professionals start to have a role and upskill themselves in this area? That's a great question, Brooke. And I think, you know, everyone plays a role. And uh, from a detection of concussion, early management, educating, um, everyone can play a role. Alongside of our consensus statement, there are links to videos. There are additional details that you can read up on. Um, and really what we, we'd love to challenge you to do is to really take the time to read through the different outputs from the consensus 
and think about how they might apply to your, your own environment. Um, because we also recognize that different sports um, have different environments as well as different cultures and geographical regions. So thinking about how these recommendations may be implemented in your environment. Um, one example is that we uh, do have a massive open online course in concussion. And part of that course includes not only content from many of the authors of the consensus statement speaking to each of the topic areas, but also a reflective tool where you can reflect on your current environment and think about how you can adapt some of these principles into your environment. And we have a moderated forum where we have a group discussion online um, to answer some of the more challenging questions across stakeholder groups. It's freely accessible, open to anyone, um, and the next course will run in early 2024 with updates from these consensus outputs. Thank you, Catherine. And um, thanks again, John. I love talking to you about this. Uh, we hope you as the listeners have enjoyed this BJSM podcast. And um, I'm sure you will enjoy listening to many of the other podcasts that are, are going to come out from this BJSM Concussion Month and all the associated resources along with that. So um, thank you again. And um, we hope you have a physically active day. Thank you.